0: The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the
1: sea. Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Cantrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing." He sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Our last study closed the first 18 months of Paul's ministry in Corinth. It was a challenging but profitable time. Jesus had declared in his foreknowledge that there were many people in Corinth who would respond to the gospel if it were shared to them, and he called on Paul to stay and endure the trials and threats and fears that constantly assailed him there. Paul had done so, and the word of the Lord had proven true, including the promise that no harm would come to him. By the time all was said and done... Two leaders from the hostile synagogue had bowed the knee to Jesus, and the Christian movement had avoided a serious altercation with the Roman authorities. Picking up now in verse 18, So Paul still remained a good while. A good while, or many days, as in the New American Standard Version, cannot be connected with a specific length. The meaning is apparently that Paul stayed there for a time sufficient to set the church in order so that he might depart with peace of mind. And he must have left in confidence that the church would do well under the care of men like Crispus, because, verse 18 continues, Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He did not leave these saints behind, but he took them along. It's difficult to know if there's any meaning in reversing the order of the names of the husband and wife here. There's no consistency in the way they're addressed from passage to passage, so probably there's no meaningfulness to it. But it was certainly a meaningful thing that they would close up the business they had started in Corinth and join Paul in his labors. They appear to be very close friends to Paul for the rest of his life after their time in Corinth together. Luke says that they sailed for Syria. The narrative bears out what we have expected this statement to mean, that Paul was returning to Antioch to report to the congregation about the success of his journey. However, the journey to Syria involved various stops and detours along the way, and some of these have some interesting details shared about them that are worthy of careful consideration. Verse 18 continues... He had his hair cut off at Kentria, for he had taken a vow. Kentria, you may remember from a previous study, was the southern seaport of Corinth, located in the Saronic Gulf of the Aegean Sea. Luke does not mention it, but evidently Paul started a congregation here, perhaps during this stay. He mentions the church at Kentria in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, where he introduces a woman named Phoebe, as a servant of the church there. It's possible that she was an enrolled widow like those we met at Joppa in Acts chapter 9. I think the language used to describe her would support that conclusion. And this simply reminds us that there was a pattern for the life and organization of the congregations throughout the world, which the Holy Spirit led the apostles to implement everywhere they labored. What Luke does say is that while they were at Kentria, however long that might have been, He had his hair cut off, for he had taken a vow. There are several controversies regarding this statement. One of the most disputed questions is who he is. Most English readers likely take it to be Paul, and this reading has a great deal of scholarly support, but some take it to be Aquila. There are reasons for this debate, and none of the evidence is terribly conclusive in my estimation. But in the end, I find Paul to be the more likely of the two to receive Luke's emphasis. This brings us to the more obvious controversies. First, what kind of vow was this? Second, why would Paul take a vow? Third, was Paul doing something related to the law of Moses here, or something normative for followers of Christ? To the first question, the most common suggestion is that Paul took a Nazarite vow— the special consecration described in Numbers chapter 6. The Nazarite vow generally lasted between eight days to one month, but it could be longer, even for a lifetime in some occasions. The only person in the Bible who we know for sure was a Nazarite was Samson, but there are compelling reasons to think that the prophets Samuel, Elijah, and John the Baptizer might have been as well. Contrary to some popular suggestions based on a misinterpretation of Matthew 2.23, there is no reason to think that Jesus was a Nazarite. In fact, virtually nothing in Jesus' life fits the description of a Nazirite other than his devotion to God, but of course that could be given apart from this special vow. As to whether or not Paul took a Nazirite vow, there are three primary concerns that people sometimes raise to the suggestion that he did. First, the Nazarite was not permitted to cut his hair, even to trim it, Numbers 6 and verse 5. Yet Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, the very church with which he was working when he took this vow, so it seems, and told them that a man should not pray or prophesy having his head covered, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. In fact, for him to do so would be to dishonor his head, which in the context seems to mean that it would dishonor Christ, see verse 3. Early Greek-speaking expositors of the New Testament, like John Chrysostom, understood this to be a prohibition against men having long hair. This seems to be supported by Paul's own words in verses 14 and 15 when he said that long hair is given to a woman for a covering, and if a man has long hair, it is a shame to him. At the end of his discussion, Paul states that these things represented not merely a local custom, but the universal practice of the apostles and all the churches of God, verse 16. It would seem then that the Nazarite vow would run contrary to this practice and teaching, and it would be especially odd for him to take such a vow, even if it was allowed on exceptional occasions, in the very place where we know this was a problem for the church. Of course, there are many who interpret the teaching in 1 Corinthians 11:2 through 16 very different from what I've just suggested, and take it to be reflective of a local custom, and say that Paul would have been under no obligation to practice it, But this would also be a striking inconsistency from his boast to the Corinthians that he was always willing to lay aside personal liberties in the interest of conscience or the sensibilities of those among whom he was preaching the gospel's sake, and that he had done so during his labors at Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-22, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I might, by all means, save some. The point of all this is simply to stress that it would have been strange, and it seems contrary to Paul's own description of his teaching and ministry at Corinth, for him to grow his hair out to be long while he worked there. Another difficulty with Paul taking a Nazarite vow would be the prohibition against consuming any product of a grapevine, Numbers 6 and verse 3. The fruit of the vine was an integral part of the Lord's Supper, which we know Paul preached at Corinth as a vital part of the life of the church. It would have been very odd for him to describe the Supper the way he did in passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17, or chapter 11, verses 23-26, through and then abstain from taking it during the period he worked with the congregation there. Yet another problem would be the fact that the Nazarite vow was not only a part of the Law of Moses, which Paul has insisted is no longer binding even for himself, see 1 Corinthians 9.20 in the New American Standard Version, but it necessarily required offering animal sacrifices at its conclusion, number 6, verses 10-21. Different interpreters might be able to find ways to come to terms with all of those problems and still insist that Paul took a Nazarite vow— but for me, the reason I do not believe that this was a Nazarite vow is primarily the fact that when he shaved his head, it was in Kenshria. The Nazarite vow regulations specifically stipulated that the head was to be shaved and the hair offered and burned, along with the sacrifices, at the doorway of the tent of meeting, number 618, which would translate to the temple in Jerusalem once that institution replaced the old tabernacle system. Early Jewish literature testifies that prior to the destruction of the temple, those who took the Nazarite vow were expected to shave their heads in Jerusalem. Even if we might suppose that some devout Jews might make an exception if they were far away from Jerusalem and not planning to be there anytime soon when the vow ended, that was not the case for Paul. He was literally on his way to that part of the country and will soon be in Jerusalem, as the narrative reveals in the next few verses. For this reason, primarily, many scholars reject that this was a Nazarite vow and need not assume any of the problematic issues related to the Nazarite vow would have troubled Paul while he was observing it. But if not a Nazarite vow, then what kind of vow was it? Most likely, a vow of Paul's own invention and design. From the earliest days, it has been common for human beings in times of great testing to call on God and to formally commit themselves to His faithfulness by consecrating themselves to a special manifestation of personal fidelity. We've all heard of occasions when a person in a very dire circumstance "'called on the Lord for help and said something like, "'If you get me through this, I will dedicate my life to you, "'or I'll never do such and such a thing again.' "'When the young Scottish minister Alexander Campbell "'was sailing to America, the ship he was on "'was caught in a terrible storm. "'Campbell feared for his life, but he prayed "'and promised God that if he survived, "'he would no longer take financial remuneration "'for preaching the gospel.' Of course, such remuneration was his right, according to the word of God, but he made a vow to sacrifice it. By all accounts, after God saw him through the storm, Campbell kept that vow. There have also been many notorious examples of people making such vows and immediately forgetting them as soon as God fulfilled his part of the situation. In Jeremiah 34, King Zedekiah led the people of Jerusalem in making a covenant to finally obey some of God's neglected commands if he would spare them from the destruction he had declared would come against them. At first, they did what they said they would do, but as soon as the situation began to appear less grim, they went back on their word. Most likely, Paul made this vow in response to Jesus' call for him to stay in Corinth and continue ministering despite the danger and discouragement that he was facing there. If this was the case, we can see the vow as Paul consecrating himself to demonstrate that so long as Jesus was faithful to him, he would be faithful to Jesus. Shaving his head obviously had something to do with the commitment that he had made and manifest publicly that Christ had done just as he had promised. There's nothing about vows like this that God has ever found offensive. In fact, they can be very honorable manifestations of trust in God, but the consistent charge throughout all history has been, as Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5 says, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. For those who might be troubled at Paul going any length of time without cutting his hair, in light of his teaching in First Corinthians 11, It might be of some comfort to consider this traditional description of Paul as, among other things, a man small of stature with a bald head. It seems that Paul was, like myself, such a man as could forgo a haircut for eighteen months without any real danger of having his head covered. Verse 19, And he came to Ephesus and left them there. That is, he left Priscilla and Aquila, Likely they opened a new tent-making shop in the city, and later we will find that they also worked to share the gospel and lay a foundation on which Paul could labor further if and when he returned. But he himself, that is Paul, entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem but I will return again to you, God willing. Before departing, he took advantage of his time there to speak about Jesus to the Jewish community. This was a bold and in many ways a surprising move. Paul's previous experiences would seem to support the probability that introducing Christ and then leaving would give an advantage to those satanically inspired forces who would seek to turn the people's hearts away from the Christian message. But Paul had, as he would often testify, a zeal for Israel to be saved. In the end, his message seems to have stirred up more interest than opposition. But it did not deter him from his course. The New King James Version has him saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. This clause, however, is not supported by the best manuscripts and should be rejected as a later interpolation probably designed to offer an explanation for why he was in such a hurry, but ultimately a suggestion without any foundation and one that is proven more troublesome than helpful. The text should actually read, as in the New American Standard Version, when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. Saying, if God wills, was a lesson he had learned, by a life of service to Christ. Once before he had been forbidden to preach the word in Asia, and then enjoined to stay in a place which he felt he should leave. But he trusted the wisdom of God over all things. Verse 22. And he sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea, and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. Although Caesarea is the only city mentioned in this text, The language of going up and coming down indicates the church he visited was Jerusalem. The elevation of Jerusalem is higher than Caesarea or Syrian Antioch, and those who are careful readers of the Gospels will recall that one always goes up to Jerusalem, even if traveling south. Luke does not say that Paul went to Jerusalem to keep a feast, but to greet the church, and most likely to report to them what a great success he had seen from the letter they drafted a few years earlier at the meeting there in the city. By this time, the other apostles had probably moved on, and soon Paul did also. His destination was Antioch. What did he do here? Why did he feel so pressed upon to return, and to return at this time? Certainly he would have, as at other times, gathered the church together and reported all that God had done with them, Acts 14.27. But it is also highly probable that he returned to gather some more financial support for the next stage in his work. Remember that during this time in Corinth, he had seen the need to refuse support from them and only occasionally received the means to press on from the congregation at Philippi, and perhaps a few others who were generous to him in times of need. Support for this assumption may be drawn from what happened next. Verse 23, after he had spent some time there, likely teaching and serving the church in various ways, but also resting and visiting old friends, maybe giving the church an opportunity to collect some funds to give to him, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. This is the same program by which he began the second missionary journey, and now he begins a third. During the second journey, new evangelists were trained and stationed at new congregations across a new region. There were many dangers, toils, and snares, to be sure, but in the face of it all, the kingdom is spreading. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians, of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless, and have a great week
0: from all the dark places of earth's heathen races oh see how the thick shadows fly the voice of salvation awakes every nation come over and help us to cry the kingdom is spreading oh tell ye the story god's better exalted shall be THE EARTH SHALL BE FULL OF HIS KNOWLEDGE AND GLORY AS WATERS THAT COVER THE SEA WITH PRAISING AND SINGING AND jubilant RINGING THEIR ARMS OF REBELLION CAST DOWN AT LAST EVERY NATION THE LORD OF SALVATION WITH GLORY THEIR EFFORT SHALL CROWN the kingdom is spreading, O oh tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.